Section 8 of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 Political Infiltration. Despite the editorials and highly colored accounts of Indian outrages that filled the press, the stout farmer from the Vly did not waver in his determination to deny the landlords the use of state troops as rent collectors political opponents naturally made capital of the governor's stubbornness not only the whigs but also the barn-burner faction of the democrats were delighted to be handed such ammunition so close to the november elections in the manor counties however the major political parties were in a difficult position both watched the burgeoning anti-rent organization with alarm and began to put out bait for tenant support off the manors the whigs could heap abuse on governor bouck for meeting with the anti-renters but in the insurrectionary districts they had to be cautious even friendly in the daily edition circulated only in the city the troy whig called upon bouck to order out the troops at once to put down the rebellion but in the weekly whig circulated largely among the farmers all agitation for state interference was omitted the tenants were already aroused to the importance of the local elections of 1844, and for once hardly needed any coaching. But Thomas DeVere would not miss the opportunity to help. He came to the anti-rent counties fresh from the New England Workingmen's Convention in Boston, where he and Evans and Beauvais had introduced land reform and anti-rentism to a warmly sympathetic audience inspired by wendell phillips's silver tempest of indignation at the wrongs set before the meeting and a withering invective against the godless authors of those wrongs de vere was ready to map out the winning strategy for the anti-renters while evans and beauvais remained in new york city to launch the first national reform political campaign de vere impressed on the farmers the need to be done with political emotionalism now was the time for realism he said discriminating use of the ballot would free their farms of feudal ties in short order on the advice of george evans who had analyzed the causes of the failure of the defunct workingman's party both national reform and anti-rentism were to be used as a wedge for the eventual reshuffling of the major parties this could best be done by infiltration an art at which the anti-renters soon proved themselves masters. The anti-renters should not drive headlong into an already confused political situation with a new party, but rather win pledges from Whig and Democratic candidates, entering independent names only where support was refused. Every candidate refusing to support anti-rent should be blacklisted regardless of party, and the scoundrels now in power had to be ousted. Just as in the 1842 election, the Democrats were split. Former President Martin Van Buren, who had been living in semi-retirement at his home Lindenwald since his overwhelming defeat in 1840, was trying to salvage his political chariot, but a coalition of Southern Democrats and Northern Conservatives who favored the admission of Texas into the Union had defeated him, and nominated James K. Polk for president. The tenant farmers were not interested in Polk's candidacy. 
but neither were they enthusiastic for Henry Clay, the Whig candidate. Texas was too far away, and the pressing need was proper representation in Albany. For governor, the Whigs had nominated Millard Fillmore, the Buffalo lawyer who had represented them in the legislature and in Congress, and now had both gubernatorial and presidential ambitions, hence was maintaining strict silence on all controversial issues. The Democrats had turned down Governor Bouck and nominated a barn-burner, Silas Wright, a large, stoutish man of florid complexion and blue-gray eyes. The choice of Wright was really dictated by Martin Van Buren, who was determined to regain control of the party, if only within the state. He encouraged the barn-burners, led by his son John and Michael Hoffman, to nominate Wright, who had been his political lieutenant in Washington. There were several points in Wright's favor. As a Senate debater, he ranked with Henry Clay and Daniel Webster. He had remained aloof from state party squabbles, and he had shown great personal loyalty by refusing both the compromise presidential and the vice-presidential nomination after the Democrats had scuttled Van Buren. The farmers, traditionally Democratic, were inclined to accept Wright's reputation as a progressive Jeffersonian. He was a farmer by birth, and a resident of Canton, St. Lawrence County. He was known as the incorruptible Cato of the American Senate. As the spearhead of the progressive financial program of his party, he was credited with liberalism and statesmanship despite the fact that he had opposed anti-slavery petitions and voted against permitting anti-slavery propaganda to be sent through the mails, and had the anti-renters been aware of the agitated letters that had shuttled between Wright's home at Canton and party headquarters in Albany, their affection for him would have been dangerously strained. The landlords had better reason to put their faith in Silas Wright, and events were to show that his reputation was only the fruit of party regularity during a period of progressivism. Edwin Croswell, editor of the conservative Argus, who supported Wright only out of his own party loyalty, wrote to warn him that the tenants were busying themselves with this election, that Weed and Company were out to make political capital of anti-rentism, and that the anti-renters might call upon him to take a stand on the issue for the public eye. In Rensselaer County, for example, Sheriff Reynolds was acting in perfect understanding with the Indians, the object being to collect votes rather than rent. Mr. Fillmore will be perfectly in the hands of weed, Croswell predicted, and will try anything and write anything which Thurlow should dictate. Though he hoped Croswell's alarm was baseless, Silas Wright asked the advice of Azariah C. Flagg and other party strategists. He confessed that he was totally ignorant of the ugly subject, but could not bring himself to believe that the farmers were disposed to raise the broad question of the right of the landlord to claim and collect rent, or that they expected candidates to commit themselves on such a principle— he would never impair the obligation of contract by abolishing the remedy of enforcement. Surely, he wrote, these people cannot place themselves upon a ground so hard, and which appears to me to be so wholly indefensible constitutionally, legally, and morally. Michael Hoffman gave him his answer, not to traffic with anti-rentism. 
the renters will work mischief hoffman wrote but don't let our people whore with them the governor bulk did enough in that line make no compromise with any ism democracy or nothing hold to this and we are safe as it happened silas wright did not need to make any statement of his position democrats in strong anti-rent areas were talking anti-rentism for him and he was reaping the benefit they were circulating handbills sparing no exertion to make indians of themselves democratic party papers made much of a statement by circuit judge amasa j parker favoring the repeal of special distress privileges held by landlords and declaring that the welfare of the cultivator of the soil and the public interest would be promoted by abolishing leasehold estates parker was one of the democrats best exhibits at this time for he had lived in delhi delaware county for eighteen years before he moved to albany as an appointee for governor Boke, and had been elected to the assembly and to congress by farmer votes the fact that in washington he had worked closely with silas wright on van buren's financial program was not against him at this point either some of the candidates for office were far from subtle in their wooing of tenant votes david seymour of rensselaer county democratic candidate for congress told the farmers that he cordially sympathized with them and would not if he had the power hurt a hair of their heads the efforts of sheriff reynolds prevailed against such negative support and instead the anti-renters endorsed whig richard herrick who boldly told them to avoid the payment of rent peaceably and by legal means if you can if not you know what to do in albany county both parties were wary as a little band of patriots assembled at david sager's in new scotland in what was in effect the first anti-rent political convention there said the farmers report of the meeting we kindled a fire under the hills of the old helderberg to which men whose hearts beat with the rapturous glow of freedom have turned their eyes for the assembly the farmers nominated ira harris the albany lawyer who in january had given dr boughton a legal opinion supporting their petitions harris promised to maintain with scrupulous fidelity the rights of property and secure to industry and effort its promised reward and also to work for laws which in their tendency would distribute wealth as equally as possible among all classes of the community that people he declared is most happy and prosperous where there is none very rich and none very poor the whigs certain that the anti-renters would name harris had already decided upon him as their candidate for the assembly thus hoping to secure farmer support for their whole ticket an anti-renter leaving harris's office with his statement to the tenants was waylaid and given tavern hospitality by a democratic worker sent to get a copy of it at all costs the democrats hoped for ambitious pledges with which they could discredit the whig party but harris had been cautious in his promises i greatly appreciate the confidence of those you represent he had written should i be elected my best exertions shall be given not only to secure prompt and favorable action upon the petitions of the tenants but also to obtain for them all relief consistent with fair and constitutional legislation 
On Tuesday, November 5th, it became clear that by forsaking their lifetime voting habits to vote for principle rather than party, the anti-renters had upset political complacency with reckless ease. That evening victory fires burned in the anti-rent towns, and horns blared on the hills. James K. Polk and Silas Wright were elected, but the celebration was rather for Ira Harris and the other new members of the assembly from Albany, Rensselaer, Schoharie, and Delaware counties, who had promised to support the tenants. Whig union with the anti-renters had profited Thurlow Weed less than he had expected. Not only was his candidate for governor defeated, but the Whig bid for reciprocal anti-rent support for Henry Wheaton for Congress had also failed. The farmers could not forgive Wheaton for using information he had gained as their intermediary in 1839, after he became district attorney of Albany County. But, observed Evans's working man's advocate candidly, the tenants could not have defeated Wheaton solely on this issue, had not another engine been adroitly worked to kill him. He owns a number of houses in the outskirts of Albany, some of which are tenanted by bad women and kept as bawdy houses. A loud outcry was raised against him on this score, and the rigidly righteous of the Whig party scratched him off their ticket. The bawdy houses and the anti-renters killed Wheaton, and he was elected to stay at home. In the post-election dawn, the landed aristocracy and the industrial capitalists recognized the menace in the tenants' political unity. It had accomplished more for radical action than any political union of the working classes to date, and was linked to reviving labor movements which threatened industrial profits. The causes which brought this about tell favorably for the masses, Evans commented in The Working Man's Advocate, the national reformers had fared badly in New York, but the alarm of the conservatives was flattering. James Gordon Bennett's herald charged that the land reformers, including Park Godwin, who ran for Congress, were actually nominated by the anti-renters to advocate non-payment of rent. Trading politicians had fastened on the movement, Bennett warned, and would go right on until the right of property be overthrown. Moses Beach, editor of the Conservative Sun, lumped anti-renters and reformers together as neither more nor less than English chartists transported to this country. Only eight weeks were left before the anti-renters would take their seats in the legislature. The only upstate landlord who did not look upon those eight weeks of 1844 as the last chance to wreck the tenant movement was Garrett Smith, the liberal, he stayed the collection of rent for the first six months of the coming year, hoping that the whole matter of tenures would be settled through legal channels. The other landlords, in a final attempt to destroy public sympathy for the tenants' cause, made a concerted drive to provoke violence. Deputy sheriffs, armed with warrants, moved into almost every leasehold county, when the inevitable strife resulted, the conservative papers cried hysterically that civilization was doomed. Political bigwigs welcomed the showdown, and stood by to help in a systematic crushing of anti-rentism, just as soon as aroused public opinion would stand for it. End of Section 8 
Recording by Maria Casper.